Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Teresa Younger was the first black woman to lead the ACLU of Connecticut. Later, she would become the executive director of the state's former permanent commission on the status of women. Today, she's president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women, the oldest women's foundation in the United States. We sit down with Younger as part of our Making Her Story series, highlighting the voices of prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Under her leadership, the Ms. Foundation launched My Feminism Is, a multimedia campaign sparking a national conversation on feminism. Coming up, we'll find out what she learned from a national listening tour, including why some Americans don't identify as feminists. We spoke to Younger before an audience at Gateway Community College in New Haven. Teresa, welcome back to Connecticut. Thank you. <laughs> Let's Let's talk about the Ms. Foundation for Women. Mm -hmm. Give us a little of the backstory. So the Ms. Foundation is 44 years old. It was started by uh, four friends. Amongst them were Gloria Steinem, uh, Marlo Thomas, Letty Pogren, and uh, Pat Carbine. And they uh, had started Ms. Magazine also at the same time. They assumed Ms. Magazine would make so much money that they would have to figure out a way to give it all away, so they started the foundation. I oftentimes say that we are sisters raised by the same mothers in different houses. So we are not affiliated now with Ms. Magazine and haven't been affiliated with Ma Ms. Magazine in years, um, although they are the tool for talking about uh, feminist activity and feminist movement and thought in this country. We are the institution that actually funds grassroots movement building led by women and women of color uh, throughout the United States, and we're a public foundation. And um, we have stayed true to the idea that uh, those four founding mothers believed, which is the best things happen at the grassroots level, and we need to trust women to come up with those solutions. And that's what we do. When did you first hear about the Ms. Foundation? How did you get involved? Oh, boy. OK, so don't think wrong of me. Uh, I first learned about the Ms. Foundation and Gloria Steinem when I was working at the ACLU or maybe it was with Women's Commission, I had been invited to co-chair a We Can event, which was highlighting the impact of HIV AIDS on women in the state of Connecticut. And we believe that we can, as women, put an end to the concept around AIDS in this country and in this state. At the time, Connecticut had the second highest infection rate of black women around HIV and AIDS, and so it made sense, given my role with the commission, that I would do it. And I was very excited, and I was told by the organizers that Gloria Steinem was going to be co-chairing it with me. And I thought that was wonderful. Didn't quite know who she was. I knew she was somewhat famous. I should probably know her. But I went to everybody, some of the people in the audience today, and asked, you know, are you coming to the brunch? Are you coming to the brunch? And I got to a very near, dear friend of mine. And I said, are you coming to the brunch? I see you haven't signed up. Gloria Steinem's going to be there. And she said to me, 
oh, well, how did you get Gloria Steinem? I said, oh, I, I don't know. You know they, the organization got it. I'm not sure how they did it. And she said, oh, and she said, was she going to speak? I said, yeah, she's speaking. She's going to say a few words. She said, you have no idea who she is. <laughs> I said, I kind of know who she is. She said, she started the women's movement. And I said, well, no one person starts a movement, Betty. It's more than that. It takes a lot of people to start a movement. And she said to me, Google her. <laughs> and, um, and so I did. And uh, I remember, you know, then, of course, I couldn't put together a sentence to talk to her, right? Because then I was completely tongue-tied. I found the prettiest... Um, pink um, Pepto-Bismol suit that I could ever wear and, uh, and met her at the door. And that was my first introduction to Gloria. She has been incredibly kind and generous and giving and everything you would imagine of her since that time. And I just really had an enormous respect for what she was doing. I was loving my work at the commission and thought nothing of it except that I had Gloria Steinem in my cell phone, which you know seemed pretty dreamy. Uh, the quote that I heard you now have Gloria Steinem on speed dial. Yeah. So I, I <laughs> so some people know this, but I, I grew up in North Dakota. It's, it is a state. It is in the <laughs> middle of the country. There are black people there. So I will put all of that to rest for you. Um, and, uh, and so I oftentimes say I knew more about farming than feminism, and that I thought GS meant Girl Scouts, not Gloria Steinem. And now I will tell you, I know quite a bit about feminism, <laughs> and uh, GS is in my phone. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I am not what people, I think, perceive when they think of who's leading in the women's movement. What did it mean to you to be a black woman in this position? Mm -hmm. uh, you were saying that, you know, you didn't want people in the audience to think uh, worse for you because you didn't know who Gloria Steinem is, but a lot of people in this country don't know who Gloria Steinem is, oh, or they have uh, preconceived notions of what feminism is. Right, right. So when you were able to take this position in this role, we hear so often there are very few women of color mm -hmm. leading in the C-suite, in the corporate world, yeah. uh, leading boards, even in the nonprofit world. Yeah. So what did that mean to you? I will tell you, um, the, toughest, uh, the toughest job I've ever done is this one. The idea of being a woman of color, a black woman in this moment in time, when we recognize and can see women of color finally finding voice and getting recognized um, has been unbelievable. And the weight by which I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me is, it's a weight that I choose to carry. Mm -hmm. And it's a weight that I really appreciate. I'm not the first black CEO at the Ms. Foundation. For many years, the Ms. Foundation has been uh, inclusive and diversified. It is not who the media sees. It is not what the media puts in front of them. And now we are at a point where they cannot escape it. Right? I can't provide you with an alternative because this is who it is. This is who's asking the question. This is who's challenging us to think a little bit different. This is who is saying to you, you must trust women. You must trust women of color. You must unequivocally recognize the history that we have played in this country, that we have always been leading in our communities. Just because you didn't see us mm -hmm. on your screens didn't mean that we weren't there. And now it's about telling that story in a way that's really not banging people over the head, but recognizing the real history we have. 
which if you talk to Gloria Steinem and you look at old pictures of her organizing efforts, that room is diverse. It is not, you know, the very white middle class women that we were seeing in the pictures that the media was putting in front of us. Her commitment and the commitment of the organization has for a long time been about impacting those quote unquote most marginalized. Um, what I would say now is the work of the foundation is now about amplifying the voices of women of color to mar start making change in the world and trusting that what they are doing in their communities is what we need to be doing on a national level. Mm. I think that needs some applause. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you grew up in North Dakota. Let's talk a little bit about that. I want to know a little bit more of Teresa Younger as a young girl in North Dakota. When I spoke with you uh, about a month ago, you told me that you come from a, a multiracial family. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little of, of your background? Tell us about your parents, your siblings, and what it was like to grow up in North Dakota. Yeah, so um, I'm an Air Force brat. Uh, my father was, uh, I was born into it. My father was in the military. And uh, we moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, you know, we lived, my parents are originally from New London, Connecticut. Uh, and then they took off to Germany, and then I came along when they were in Idaho, and then they went back to Germany, and then they were in upstate New York. I didn't, until I was seven, live any one place for longer than two years. And then when I was seven, we moved to Okinawa, Japan. And, um, you know, I was seven. It's very memorable to me. Um, also, at that same point, we adopted my siblings. And so I have two natural brothers, one older and one younger. And I have two adopted sisters and one adopted brother. And they are all multiracial. So my father is Native American. My mother is African American. Uh, I have a sister who's Korean, a sister who's Japanese and black, a brother who uh, is uh, black and white. And then I have two natural brothers who share a heritage that I do. And in Okinawa, I think it was all we knew that's all we knew uh, was the world we were in and, and being together. And, and then my father got orders to come to the United States. And uh, <laughs> I laugh now because I'm thinking, you know, we were very excited to move to North Dakota. We did like the excitement dance. We were going to the United <laughs> States. We were going to North Dakota. We were going to Minot, North Dakota. Um, <laughs> Just so you know, it used to be when you flew into North Dakota, it said, why not, my not? Freezing's the reason. <laughs> and, you know, so we moved from kind of almost like a tropical island into a state that said, freezing's the reason. <laughs> and um, and from, a, from a place that had um, brown people, right, to a space that really did not have a lot of diversity. And in fact, the diversity that we saw was really in my household. And I was as dark as they came in my household. And in fact, for many years, because you know there was nobody to do my hair, there was no place to buy makeup, I actually thought suntan was as dark as makeup came. So it made me look a lot different than I do right now, <laughs> as you can imagine. And I, you know, I knew no better. Mm. I knew no better. What I did know growing up was <coughs> that I may be the only person, the only black person that my friends in school would ever meet. That their images on TV were the only images that they may get of a black person. And I went to a tiny, tiny little Catholic school. Um, I was, you know, aside from my brother, we were the only black kids in school. And so 
if all you know is that you're probably not going to look like anybody in the room, then that's all you know. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, diversity was lacking. Um, the idea of what that looked like, um, how you measure yourself, you know, I was an athlete. Um, I was in the drama club. I was a, a, you know, government geek. I was that kid, right? And, uh, and it's what I enjoyed, but it didn't mean I looked like anybody. I mean, I went to school with a Trini, a Noni, a Christy, and a, a Terry. They were on the cheerleading squad with me. So you can imagine how that went. Hi, I'm Trini. Hi, I'm Noni. Hi, I'm Christy. Hi, I'm Terry. Hi, I'm Teresa. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it went, right? And I didn't look like anybody. And I tried to put on blue eyeshadow, and it never looked right. Um, and my hair never did what it needed to do because it wasn't going up in a ponytail, and it wasn't straight, and you know. Um, and I think I had some struggles with identity. More when I left North Dakota and got into spaces that were more diverse. I mean, the mm -hmm. first time that I saw, you know, a hundred black people in any one space was uh, I was 14 years old. I was on my first Girl Scout trip. We were going to Detroit, Michigan, and I remember I was in my Girl Scout uniform, and you can guess I had every badge. <laughs> Before they even designed the badge, I earned the badge, um, and I was I was hot. I had on my green, bright green Girl Scout <laughs> uniform, my plaid shirt, my matching blue shoes. I turned the corner and I saw a sea, probably the most beautiful sea of color I'd ever seen, and I started to hyperventilate. Mm. And I didn't know how to put that in words, but it was for the first time I saw the diversity that was in my own house reflected in the world more broadly. And just <laughs> what that meant, meant I wasn't alone and that there were more than me out there. When you had that realization, was it harder to go back to North Dakota? It, it wasn't hard to go back to North Dakota, but it left me longing for something more. And to know, you know, at that point, North Dakota was what I knew, right? Those were my people, right? And I always say, people will, will comment on how well I flux between different communities. And I say all the time, I grew up being the only black person in the room. So if there are 99 white people and one black person, I'm totally comfortable with that. Only in recent years has it, have I gotten to a point where if there's 100 black people and I'm there, I get comfortable in that space too. Mm -hmm. There's not an assumed of where you're comfortable. It's kind of how you've been raised and what you're, where you are. And so, uh, you know, I think that's really been a, a learning and a reality. North Dakota is far more diverse now than it was when I grew up. I, uh, my parents still live there. I have siblings that are still in the area. Um, it, it was a really amazing spot to grow up if you wanted to grow up in community, if you wanted to grow up with an appreciation of the outdoors. There was nothing I would say bad. I would say where I am now um, is built on all of those experiences. When would you say that you first experienced discrimination? Oh, I think the first time I called it discrimination uh, probably was in uh, my freshman year of high school, or college, excuse me, I, was, I went to the University of North Dakota. It's about three, three and a half hours drive from Minot to Grand Forks. It's a long, straight, 
road. <laughs> There's nothing exciting about it except that you know all the diners. You know, you always went to the same diner in Devil's Lake. Everybody went to the same diner in Devil's Lake. My father had been retired from the military. Maybe a year he had let his hair grow long. He had it in a ponytail. And I think I never paid attention to the discrimination or things that were said to me. I don't know that I tuned into it. But we stopped at this diner that I had eaten at, bought snacks at 100,000 times. Um, and we sat down and uh, ordered our food. And the waitress came over and I said, uh, she said, what are you having? And I said, oh, I'll have you know, some coffee and some eggs. And she said, OK, and she walked away. And she didn't take my father's order. And she ca came back, and I said, well, he'd like to have coffee, too. And, you know, I was a little annoyed. And I said, are you going to take his order? Well, yes. So she took his order, and she walked away. And she was about as rude as I had ever experienced anybody being. And I remember getting in the car and saying, um, well, that was really weird. And he said, racism is racism, but here it's racism against Native Americans. That's blatant. What you were called when you were, you know, in high school, you know, if you were playing basketball and somebody wanted to say something to you or how you were described in the newspaper article about, you know, what you said or what you did, one might say that was racism. But the blatant racism in North Dakota was around Native Americans. And when he let his hair grow long, he looked Native American because he was. It was like the epiphany was the eye-opening. Unless you fully experience it, you don't recognize it. Um, and people can tell you all the stories, but it's just not happening to me. I, I live in North Dakota. I live in Minot. We live in town. We go to the farm in the summer. Like, it wasn't happening to me. And when I stopped to reflect on it, yeah, it happened. It was happening to me all the time, and I didn't really recognize it. And then it was blatantly happening, and it definitely heightened a level of my own awareness. So you noticed it more often after that? A lot more often after that. Mm -hmm. A lot more often. And you know, you find your voice. When something doesn't sit right, you start finding your voice about how do you ask the question? How do you challenge the circumstance? And I think one of the things that I have learned to do is to ask the question and to challenge the circumstance that doesn't have everybody totally uncomfortable every step of the way. But to ask it in a way that says, like, did you really mean to say that? Can I ask you a difficult question? Because I think people are so unaware of their own biases and their own what they are seeing and what they are assuming that uh, people get a little lost in it. I mean, it's simple. It's simple stuff. So how often growing up did I hear, wow, you're so articulate? Yes. Right? Oh, your teeth are so white. I mean, if you think about what compliments were given, right, and how they were structured, mm -hmm. I mean, why wouldn't I be articulate, right? Why, if I have gone to college and I was a pretty good student in high school, and I, why wouldn't I be able to put together a sentence, right? Why wouldn't I be advocating the way uh, around issues that are important to me, right? If I brush my teeth every day and I don't smoke, then why wouldn't my teeth be white, right? You know, I mean, there, there are little tiny things that you have to, like, challenge people's norms around. And growing up in North Dakota, what I will say is I learned to challenge people's norms about what they thought were th they were saying 
and what they really were. How do you do that, especially these days, we hear so often about how every, everything is so divisive, and it's easy to let your emotions sometimes get carried away, but it's important that if we want to talk to each other, we have to be civil. So we have young people in the room. What's your advice to them on challenging someone's perception of them without it getting hostile? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I always function from the place of forgiveness and lack of knowledge. And that if you function from that space, then you can go in with a genuine learning. Like, to assume anybody's background, to assume anybody's information is the wrong thing. Unless you are them, you do not know their story. So before you can, uh, if you want to raise a question or challenge a circumstance, function from the spot that you actually don't know the story and do it from a place of um, inquisitiveness. Do it from the place of question so that you can have greater understanding. Because people make assumptions about people all the time, right? We sit in front of people, we have our hair one way, we have our clothes one way, we speak one way. People make assumptions all the time. You don't know people's story. And so I function from that space. I function from the space that I'm here to learn. And I'm asking the question because I genuinely want to hear your answer, not because I want to excoriate you in the process. Mm. So I, I say, you have to ask questions. You have to challenge the circumstance. That's what we've got to do. That's the obligation that we have in this country. But we can do it not from a lecturing standpoint, but much more of a place of in inquiry. Where do you get your confidence, Teresa? Who were your mentors growing up? <laughs> oh, boy. Maya Angelou. <laughs> Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem. You know, I had, uh, I have, uh, I've had a really amazing grandmother. And uh, I have a, a phenomenal aunt, um, Cynthia White. And I think I, when we moved back to the United States, seeing those figures in front of me, I think was really unbelievable. But I'll tell you, I had these exchanges in my life that I think were kind of expectations. I remember Mrs. Blackmore. She was the first um, woman of color teacher I ever had, Mrs. Blackmore. Her husband was the, the chief or head of whatever, the, the base. And I remember I was doing something on the playground I have no idea what I was doing. And she stopped me. And she took my arm. This is when you could touch. So <laughs> she took my arm and she said, I don't know what you're doing, but I expect more from you. And all I can, to this day, I can see her and I can feel her placing the expectation of what she wanted for me. And that really stuck with me in just exchanges, right? Understanding that you have, every person has a role to play. And, and I think, honestly, this will sound so cheesy. <laughs> and Girl Scout people will know this. It was the Girl Scouts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, my Girl Scout people know this, but I, it would have been easy to get lost. Moving around, not knowing people, and yet, for me, there was a spot that I had a place. There were values that were shared. There was consistency that I was looking for. And there was a place where I could succeed. 
So with all of like, I wasn't the smartest kid in school, I wasn't the best basketball player, I wasn't the best volleyball person, I wasn't the fastest runner, I wasn't the smartest strategist. What I was, was I could achieve something and the goals that I put in front of me if I was thoughtful and inclusive and challenged myself to do them. And I think in, in a number of ways, because I didn't grow up privileged, we didn't have money, I didn't just get to travel because I got to travel. I traveled because I sold enough Girl Scout cookies, right? And because those opportunities were there, that's what helped build my confidence over time. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're listening to my conversation with Teresa Younger, the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. Coming up, we'll learn about a year-long listening tour she took to find out what Americans think about feminism today. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening to a recent conversation I had with Teresa Younger, the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. It's part of Where We Live's Making Her Story series, where we talk with prominent women with ties to Connecticut. When Younger was chosen to lead the Ms. Foundation in 2014, she went on a year-long listening tour, traveling around the country to ask Americans about their views on feminism. I wanted to know what they told her. I would call people and I would say, I'm coming to your town. You set the table, no more than 20 people. I am not speaking, I am listening, I have three or four questions. And I would go in and I sat with students that were uh, in law school, I sat with business people who were deciding to go on to their community board or not, I sat with uh, uh, young women who were um, activists in their high school. I sat with a group of all men um, that were part of a union. I sat with some uh, trans women of color who uh, told me their stories. And every time I stopped to listen, and every time I asked a question, I heard all about what was not happening. So I heard from the lesbian community that the women's rights movement never fully embraced and accept them. I heard from the trans uh, community that they were not considered full women in the community and they didn't feel safe. I heard from men who said to me, you never wanted us in the room, you don't feel safe with us there, so how do we be part of a conversation around feminism? I heard from young women who said, uh, second wave uh, feminists don't understand us and we want to have more freedoms. I heard from uh, second wave feminists who said, we don't understand how people are defining feminism and what those young women are doing, right? So I heard all of this and when I got back to Brooklyn, I realized that we needed to actually engage in a conversation around feminism. And many people said to me, that's, you know, that's wasted time and space. We don't know what you're doing. And we did a whole awareness campaign called My Feminism Is. And we started a conversation around what is your feminism? And we defined it. And we defined it slightly differently than how others were defining it. How did they define it? The, the people that you were encountering, what they thought feminism. So what was interesting is people didn't necessarily have an understanding. We tested it. They, they didn't really, you know, it was women's rights. It was equality. It was all of these things. And yet, when we gave them the definition, do you believe in the value of the social, political, and economic equality of all genders? Of all genders. 86% of people would agree that value was important to them. 
When we asked them, do you consider yourself a feminist? 16% of those same people would agree. When we asked the question, do you agree that, if we told you that feminism is the social, political, and economic equality of all genders, would you then consider yourself a feminist, right? So then we started breaking out what's the difference between how you define yourself and the principle of feminism, right? What are the, what's the difference between the two? And that engaged a real conversation. And we broke out of gender binaries. So instead of saying what Webster Dictionary says, right, uh, full equality for men and women, we said all genders. We could have said all people, but we said all genders. And so it, it broadened a conversation. We included not just economic empowerment, which is where people really always want to go, which is to a conversation around uh, money and, and the economic empowerment of women. This was the social, political, and economic, right? So this was a three-part series. <laughs> this was like, how do you get there? And as I say today, well, we can talk about the social, political, and economic equality of all genders. I was not talking about empowerment. I am not talking about how we will give people power. That's what you, when you empower somebody, you give it to them. I'm talking about how we stand in our power. So there's a, some slightly different nuances to the language that we use, and it engaged a conversation about inclusivity as opposed to where people were not, mm. right? And it, it allowed us to start asking the question, who's missing from the table? Whose voices are we hearing? If you watch the whole video of My Feminism Is, you hear from men, you hear from lesbian women, you hear from trans people, you hear from people with disabilities, you hear from young voices, you hear from older voices, you hear all of the voices that are truly inclusive of how we get there. And that was really important. Now that was three years ago. The word feminism was Merriam-Webster's number one word last year. So if you put those pieces together, did we, was Teresa Younger and the Ms. Foundation the start of a conversation around feminism? No, but did we challenge the question of the norms and how often that word was being used and did we embrace it? Absolutely, because the question was, should we change the word? If feminism isn't seen as, as inclusive, do we just change the word? And I said, no, you just re-embrace it. You redefine it, you re-embrace it, you challenge it, you go that route. And I feel like that's where we are today. Um, and, and, you know, it's a strategy, it's a way to get there. I don't think I'm supposed to have the solutions. What I'm supposed to do is challenge the narrative. So people may not feel comfortable calling themselves a feminist, and but they don't support have to. the feminism movement, right. equality for all genders. That's what you're finding when you talk with people. So I would not say feminism is a movement. What I would say is, um, you get to define yourself however you want to. If we can agree on the value, which is what I think we oftentimes, feminism as a value, that's important to me. Now, if you don't choose to define yourself as a feminist, I do not get to put that on you. Um, but if you agree with this value, then we can start a conversation. And if you don't agree with this value, then you need to tell me why. What is wrong with this value statement? And part of it is, you know, getting people to even acknowledge um, that there is this language. And we have so, it has been so co-opted with an image of what it's not, right? If you're a feminist, then you don't like men. If you're a feminist, then you're not this. If you're a feminist, right? Actually, no, right? If you're a feminist and you believe in the root word as feminism, and then, then you can be part of this conversation. 
You know, I wanted to, to find out a little bit more about the, so, the social justice movements uh, that the Ms. Foundation is involved in. And then to talk about you know, the big movements of today. We mentioned that 2018 is the year of the woman. Um, we know that the past few months um, have been really striking in the history of this country when we look at uh, the Me Too movement, Time's Up. Mm -hmm. uh, people are being held accountable for their actions. And it, do you feel like there's a real shift that this can continue? Wow. Um, I do believe that there's a shift. I do believe that this can continue. I am not sure that there's a full accountability for action. Um, so I would just you know, put that out there. I think this is a unique time. 2017 was not the dumpster fire that it felt like it was, or at least I felt like it was. I felt like lots was coming at me in the 24-hour news cycle. I could barely catch my breath. And yet, look at all of these wonderful things. Women showed up in the millions, right? Men showed up, right? We had people getting elected, people running for office, people asking questions, more stories getting written. They all stacked on to each other. So I think that's all good. I think, unfortunately, in some ways, we still think that um, women are supposed to be providing the answers. And, and so we've said, oh, well, the Me Too movement, women are now empowered, mm -hmm. and they're telling their story. How many of you know actually how the Me Too movement started? Right? So those who are unaware, the Me Too movement started so that young black girls did not have to tell their stories about sexual abuse. All they had to say was Me Too. It was a simple way of acknowledging a, a presence in the room. You didn't have to go through it all. So the Me Too movement that we see in front of us today is not that which it started, right? Um, so I think we have to know our own history, but in that space, it's not incumbent upon many of us women to stop being sexual harassers, because we're not that. This is about changing male behavior. This is about defining levels of respect. This is about um, uh, objecting and, and recognizing what is going on in our culture around the hypersexualization of women and the acceptance of what that looks like uh, in, in every form, whether it's you know, the reporter who's telling you the story or uh, somebody who's uh, you know, on the football field. This is about a broader conversation. And I'm not sure in just outing people that we are getting to changed behavior. And, I, and the, in the level of accountability, I would also question how many of those men who have been fired are walking away without any money in their pocket? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's talk to Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer. I mean, these men did not, they might be embarrassed, but they're not impoverished. And when you are the victim and a survivor of, one of, of sexual harassment, sexual assault, any aspect of that, you can end up impoverished when your spirit and your soul is broken, right? Um, you have to be a survivor in order to walk out every day. There are women who are often survivors, but these men, whether they lost their job and they got embarrassed, they're not impoverished. Their spirit has not been broken. They've been called out on poor behavior. 
they've been called out on unacceptability. And so when we talk about like where we're going and what we're doing, yes, women's voices need to be heard. We need to take responsibility for what we can take responsibility for. We need to be engaged in conversation. We need to raise young women and young men with an, uh, an understanding of what respect looks like, what terminology looks like, right? Um, so I, and, and we're at a very different point in our history to have that. We can't hold everybody accountable for what happened 30 years ago. We need to hold them accountable for where we are as a society today. And how much of our societal wealth has been lost because of that poor behavior mm -hmm. in the past. So, I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged. I mean, I do. I, I look and I see amazing young people. I see amazing old people. I see amazing people my age, which is kind of old, but not really, um, <laughs> who, are, who have found their voice. I'm complete, I'm an optimist, but I will, t and I will tell you, this is an amazing time. And I completely think that we are heading in the right direction. I don't think that we will see this time duplicated for a long time. But I think we have to do this in order to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we mentioned that 2018, again, is being called Year of the, the Woman. Uh, so many women becoming more active in the political process mm -hmm. that are signing up for the candidate schools. Uh, Patricia Russo is here from uh, the Yale uh, Campaign School. Uh, people are engaged and they want to make change. Do you feel, though, that depending on how the midterm elections turn out, <laughs> yes. that people might lose that, that drive? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. What I, I, I mean, like I said, I'm an optimist. I don't think that electoral politics is the only way that we change society. I think it is a way. And I think we need women and like-minded men to be running on every level school board, dog catcher, right? Finance board, town council, uh, you know, county councils, all of those. I think we need to have women running for them. I also think that we need to have them uh, on their ch church deacon boards and in their temples and in their synagogues holding levels of leadership. And I think we need to recognize that women's voices um, and how we use our positional power within our homes does make us leaders and women and people of power. We've had many years of the woman. They come in, they go. I think we need to have like the lifetime of women doing and being recognized for the work and the leadership that they are doing and being. And, and we do not know them. Mm -hmm. The good thing about the Ms. Foundation is that I meet women who are doing the work in their communities that nobody ever gets to meet and they are as impressive as any woman that could get elected to office. They are as committed as any person um, that's looking to make change happen. And so I think as exciting as it is to see women more women running for political office than we've ever seen, to see more women winning, to see women showing up at the polls, to see what we're going to do with the midterm and beyond, um, I, I also recognize that we're just getting ourselves a little bit more organized. And uh, this is just the first step in what I think will be pretty impressive. And we don't know who the next rising star is out there. If we think we know, then we don't know enough people. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Teresa Younger was a recent guest of our special series, Making Her Story, where we speak to prominent women with Connecticut ties. 
Younger is president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. We spoke to her last week at Gateway Community College in New Haven. After the break, Younger answers audience questions, including how should women engage more men in conversations about gender equality? That's coming up. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're listening to my conversation with Teresa Younger, the president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. I interviewed her in front of an audience at Gateway Community College in New Haven as part of our Making Her Story series. Audience members had questions for her, too, including this one. Could you speak a little bit about your experiences engaging men mm -hmm. in the feminist conversation? Mm -hmm. um, I, so I work almost invariably with men who are my peers. And um, when a feminist conversation begins, many of them will say, well, I have a daughter, mm -hmm. and I care a lot about these issues. Yes. And I'll <laughs> say, great, let's have the conversation. And then invariably it sort of peters out because I feel like men feel often, despite having liberal values, uh, having worked with women all their lives, having daughters, that they're somehow ill-equipped because they're men to have this conversation with you. And, and so I don't know what your experiences have been in bringing men into the conversation, but I'd love to hear there were strategies. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I don't know that I have like perfect strategies, but acknowledging the reality of it, that we haven't created a space for men to have a voice. And we have to figure out what that looks like. So believe me, I sit on some boards where only men talk. Right, you know, and we have to ask them to be quiet. So we actually have to create an understanding of where your voice shows up, where it doesn't, what's happening, um, where their voice is valued. You know, their voice is not valued in telling me what to do with my body. Their voice is valued in them identifying how they emotionally feel about it. Right? You can have your feelings hurt, um, and so I sometimes will be as obnoxious as possible to break down the conversation. Right? So I have, I have daughters and I have a wife. Well, then you totally understand what it's like to go buy tampons. <laughs> then we can totally have a conversation, right? A acknowledging their level of expertise is a way to play into it and a desire to have them at the table. If you really don't want them at the table, don't invite them in. I mean, if you really want to engage in a conversation, engage in the fact that they may not have all the answers and they feel uncomfortable about it. So I think we just have to understand where comfort is, and we have to invite men in. I mean, the Ms. board has a th will have a third men on the board, the same way we aspire to have at least a third women on boards, right? How do we reverse some of that psychology and engage in some of that conversation? Um, and then, in all honesty, you have to call BS, you know? You have to call BS, and I call a lot of BS. I sit in a lot of circles, whether it's in, uh, you know, uh, all white people that, you know, think that they have diversity because now I'm sitting there, right? Um, uh, you know, to, you know, all men in the room. I, I spoke at a conference a couple of uh, months ago, and I was the only black woman at a conference of 250 people. And I started my presentation to say this. We hold these two truths, and if you do not believe them, that is fine, then you don't have to listen to anything else I have to say. But if you believe them, then we should have a conversation. The first truth is, I am the only black woman in this room. And to that crowd, they could not dispute it. 
right? The second thing is, I wholeheartedly believe that people want to do good in the world and that everybody in this room wants to do good in the world. By outlining that as the principle of the conversation, it changed the assumptions that they could make of me, right? Um, so I, I think it just really, you know, you have to be willing to call the question when the question's happening, not in a way to like, okay, sometimes it's a way to blow up the room, but sometimes it's in a way to really engage in the conversation. And it totally changed the conversation. Uh, it, it was because like somebody wants you to call the question. Like, guess what? Men don't understand women's bodies. Men don't necessarily understand the challenges that we face, right? Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just acknowledging that breadth of the conversation. So I say call BS as often as possible and, and challenge them. There's a question over here. Inclusion, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Disability issues at any one point in time we are a minority. We're the largest minority. Mm -hmm. The thing is this, that if you look at human lifespan experience, we're actually a majority experience. Either you have a disability, you're born with it, or you acquire one, or if you live long enough, you will certainly have one, trust me about that. <laughs> so why are we so excluded? What is this about? Some people here may know the term ableism. It goes along with the other isms, racism and sexism and all classism and all that other stuff, right? And my personal feeling about the situation here is I would love it to come to a place where the stage is accessible always. But mostly, they're not. Why? The other side is something that not everybody has even heard this term, disabilophobia. Mm -hmm. You are doing such a wonderful job on so many different levels. Do more with disability. Mm -hmm. Help to promote it more. Respond to that. So, <laughs> first off, we've known each other for a very long time. <laughs> she calls my BS a lot. Uh, uh, on this, I will say, uh, when I got to Ms. and we started asking the question, who's missing from this table, it became very clear uh, who was missing from the table. And we have been very intentional um, about making sure that we include multiple voices of people with disabilities. And in fact, every media campaign we have done and every table we're sitting at, we are asking that question. And part of the question is how are we trusting their voices to influence the conversation? Not as a monolith, because sometimes we do that, we put one person at the table and we assume that they are speaking for everybody, um, not as a monolith, but as a part of the conversation. And so I appreciate the challenge and the foundation is right there to push along and we have been for a long time and uh, I feel really proud about that. But we're not there and you are right. Uh, there is a very big spectrum of who we see with people with disabilities and who we don't and how we engage that and what that needs to look like. And there's gonna be a many, 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 many more battles in that space because um, the Affordable Care Act however you stand on it, would have uh, been completely annihilated had it not been for the disability community. They were willing to put their bodies on the lines for health care, 
for everybody in this country. And I think we forget that. Uh, again, there's some students in the room, uh -huh. and they may be looking at you right now. They and are. Wondering <laughs> and, and wondering, <laughs> and wondering, I want to be Teresa Younger when I grow up. Oh, goodness. What's your <laughs> advice to them? Um, don't be Teresa Younger. <laughs> no, no, don't be Teresa. Be you. And do it your way. This is not about how it's supposed to get done. So if that means, you know, everybody goes right and you go left, because that's what feels comfortable to you, then go left. And if everybody goes left and you go straight, go straight. Do what helps you get the most experiences in your life. You can't talk to one adult in this room who thinks that they are 100% what they think they were going to do or be. Y you just don't know. You don't know what opportunities are going to open up for you. And you make decisions that fit your gut. Take advantage of what comes in front of you, but be you. Be you in the biggest, baddest way you can be. Um, and don't apologize. Can you remind us of that quote that you have when you wake up in oh. the morning? Well, yeah, <laughs> so my favorite quote um, is, be the kind of woman that when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, the devil says, oh, she's up. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa Younger, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Teresa Younger, president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women, speaking with me at Gateway Community College as part of WNPR's Making Her Story series. Our next Making Her Story will be Tuesday, April 3rd at the University of St. Joseph in West Hartford. I'll be speaking with retired FBI agent Sheila Horan. I hope you can join us. More information on our website at WNPR.org. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Joe Koss, Sherry Parr, Mike Dunphy, Beth Messina, Katie Tolarski, Carlos Mejia, Garnet McLaughlin, Carol Pompano, and Gateway's EdTech team. Thanks for listening.